because for some of you this is the first time in this hall, I'd really, and for some of you it's the second or maybe the third, but it's my third time in here and I'm not over being excited about it. So I'd like to invite you to do whatever is your favorite contemplative exercise for the next half hour or so. Um, I have forgotten uh, to mention for a few weeks now uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's gata, breathing in I calm my body, breathing out I smile. That's a lovely practice. And if you haven't learned it before, maybe you want to try it. If you have something that you'd rather do, do that. It's something like, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. It's in the same category. I like that one too. So I guess I'll do both. And I invite you to do what you want to do. Ajahn Amro was here uh, on the uh, 6th of June and he teaches let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and then just stay that way. I like that very much. So all of the above, any or all of the above.
in these last minutes that we sit together, I invite you to um, share whoever it is that you're thinking about uh, with special blessing intent this morning. I was thinking about um, my, my, uh, my friend Marilyn, who's been my friend for uh, 55 years since I moved to Marin, who uh, is this morning flying uh, unaccompanied from San Francisco to Boston, which is a pretty long flight. She's 90 years old. She uh, gets around with a cane and a walker, and she's going to visit her sister, who's a year younger, who's had a lot of health problems recently. And they talk on the telephone a lot, and they Skype a lot, but uh, they've decided that being together in the same room is really important. So Marilyn's flying this morning, and she doesn't have to transfer anywhere, but it's a six-and-a-half-hour flight to Boston. So I just hope it goes well for her. Who are you particularly thinking about today? I think maybe it'd be good to use a microphone. I have to choose between not being able to uh, hear or uh, the spontaneity of just speaking out. Either speak loud or wave. I'm thinking of my grandnephew, Max, who recovered from a big stomach cancer, and it's returned this summer, a week after he was clear. So I'm just sending a lot of healing to um, his family and to him. He's 22 years old. I was thinking a lot about this is my first time being away from my three-month-old for any amount of time, so I was thinking about that and my good friend next to me who's pregnant, so just thinking a lot about this phase of our life, I guess, of little kids and motherhood. If you hesitate to use the microphone and you just want to speak out of your heart and not even open your eyes, just speak loud.
my partner and I traveled to Scotland. And she's uh, a little anxious. She gets confused easily. So I'm just hoping and trusting that everything will go well for this trip that she's bravely, courageously making. <coughs> I'm thinking of my friends, Tommaso and Deborah, who lost their little girl, Julia, four months ago. And it's still, of course, very difficult for them. And I'm um, sending them lots of love. I'm thinking of Phyllis, who normally sits here on Wednesdays and is also um, a yoga practitioner, and she's experiencing a lot of pain in her back and may have to have surgery. And for months now, she's uh, been having to dive deep into her dharma, as she says, and um, knowing that this too will pass, but wanting her life back. I'm feeling... <clears throat> I'm feeling a great deal of gratitude being here today and 
in this beautiful place from our other, from our other hall and just visioning the possibility of, pos of positive transformation that positive transformation is also possible. Thinking about myself, who used to come over here and have uh, uh, residence retreats, and how wonderful it was. And now I'm back, like after three years, and um, I'm just thinking about myself right now and uh, where I was. Francisco, who called themselves Causa Justa, who were so articulate and understanding in making their presentation to the supervisors' meeting last week for San Francisco. I'm thinking, as we mentioned, all of these diverse things happening around our personal lives and in our communal lives, how uh, I feel when I listen to everybody, some of them people I know personally and mostly people I don't know so personally. So I think it's probably true for all of you that we listen to people that we know or don't know and we hear their stories and their situations and we're moved by it. Um, and I think so much about uh, 
sometimes we there are the kind of philosophical questions have to do with life being meaningless and how do we make our lives meaningful? I think our lives are meaningful if we think about them. Everybody's life is meaningful because we care about so many things. However much we know about temporality, things come and go. That does not have anything to do with the fact they do come and go. But that while they're, while they're here, they're dear to us. And when they're dear, it's meaningful how things are with them. And we're touched by that. And we respond. I was going to say the Buddhist readings I've been doing is we respond with the natural warm heart. But I think that's everybody's spirituality. It's not just for Buddhists, it's just the Buddhist way of saying it. But that we're strung for compassion, really. May all of the people we mentioned and thought about be safe and well cared for. It's wonderful. I, I never mind when somebody's cell phone rings because I, I just have such a feeling that everyone first thinks, uh-oh, may that not be mine. <laughs> Isn't that true? And then they think, oh good, it's not mine. Everybody but one person. And then they think, oh, may that person whose cell phone it is not feel bad about it. Isn't that true? Didn't you feel that also? May they not be embarrassed, because it could happen to anybody. May all beings everywhere be cared for and safe and be meaningful to themselves and to other people. You know, I, I won't ring the bell now. Often I ring the bell after that. But I think that's the kind of prayer that... Uh, is the is the uh, ongoing prayer in life? I want to talk about that this morning. So, even though Anne can sit down, and we won't do that formally anymore this morning. I want to talk about both the the practice of making things dear to you and caring about them. Somebody talking about a loss in a family this morning said they're not over it yet. We're not over things. We don't get over things. We, they, we get a little bit able to accept what happens to us. But when, when great losses happen to us, we're never finished feeling sad about it. We're not supposed to, really. And to feel caring about it. I've been really thinking a lot, and I want to talk primarily about how caring about and looking after people and praying for them, in fact, which is what uh, loving-kindness practices is really the antidote to uh, suffering about the fact that life is by its very nature, because everybody loses everything and everyone eventually, by its very nature always challenging. How will I keep my heart alive and responsive. I want to remember to say, just for a beginning, so I don't forget to say it, 
that this Sunday is the Pride Parade. How many people here have signed up to walk with Spirit Rock? Do you know that Spirit Rock has a contingent walking? Have a contingent walking. How many people here know that the Grand Marshal of the Pride Parade this year is our very own Larry Yang? Ah, and there are 150 people signed up to be in the Spirit Rock contingent to walk behind him. Uh, so he will be with Stephen in the first car, and there will be, with the contingent that follows him, uh, one of those buses that looks like a trolley, looks like a San Francisco trolley, but it's actually a bus. And there are some spaces left in the bus for people who don't feel that they're able to walk that two miles. It's, it's less than two miles, actually. But it's a lot of stop and go and stop and go, and it's likely to be warm. So having in mind that some of the people here and in the East Bay Sangha that Larry is one of the founding teachers of, are not comfortable doing that. There's this bus that's going, and it'll probably be marked with our name or banners or something. But you can still sign up. And uh, if you sign up, you can reserve yourself a place on the bus if you need it. And this seems really like uh, a, a, a very good year to do that. Uh, not only because it's our very own Larry, but Larry did a teaching the other day, which I was going to mention later, but I'll mention now while I find my glasses. Uh, on Saturday, when we uh, had the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas um, day here, he talked about the fact that we all have on our minds this particular week uh, when we think about being moved by something painful that happened not to us, not even near to us, but in our, in our sphere of knowing the, that the, the uh, situation in Orlando, the terrible event that happened in Orlando, is on everybody's mind. And uh, Larry brought up one point that seemed so particularly important to me. He said, among other things, he said that it's uh, uh, bitterly ironic that um, in the day and days following that shooting in Orlando, people uh, donated blood in Florida, in Orlando, but to blood banks all over the country as a gesture of response and of caring. So the blood banks are full. He said, the only thing that's poignantly ironic is that the gay community of gay men cannot donate blood because of an archaic rule that's frightened of the blood, where in fact, um, if, uh, in order to have it show up that you actually have the HIV virus in you, it shows up three days after you've been infected. So most people, could say with impunity, most people if they wanted to donate blood could say I have not had any sexual experience in the last three days and have a blood test and have that count. But he said another thing after that, he said the whole gay community is barred from donating blood, the gay men's community. But he said the, other, the back side of looking at that 
is that there has been such a ge- uh, uh, an outpouring of generosity and caring, and we know for sure that it wasn't from the gay community. And he said, that's really very heartwarming to a community that might not have been that way 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but it is now. And to think about the fact that that's a one, one particular instance of seeing past the, the lines that divide us, me from them, us from them, gay and straight and uh, African-American or Asian or European or whatever, that really, man or woman, old or young, everybody's life is valuable. And to begin to see that and begin to break down the uh, barriers in one's own mind. I wanted to start by uh, saying that one of the things that I did on Saturday is um, when we started, there was, there was some food served beforehand. And I read uh, uh, the grace that Norman Fisher wrote for the grace before meals. And the last line of that grace, the first line, says, as we get ready to eat this food, as we would with any kind of a grace in whatever religious tradition, we say we're really grateful for whatever went into producing, growing and providing in the earth and the sun and the rain and the seeds and the harvesting and the planting and the cooking and the transportation. and Grateful for all of those And then the second verse says, with the blessing of this food, may we join our hearts with the one heart of the world in awareness and love. And may we, together with everyone, together with everyone, realize the path of awakening and never stop making effort for the benefit of others. I love the last line. It could be, a grace before meals, it could be a grace after meals, it could be a convocation before a board meeting. May we never stop making effort for the benefit of all beings. At the same time, I was reading uh, the the uh, uh, translation of the Metta Sutta by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. We read a particular translation mostly. The one that I often bring to class and we read together is another translation that they all more or less say the same thing. But Tanisaro Bhikkhu says the summary of what we should do. Those of you who've read it or I've brought it here or you've come on a mental retreat says, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease. And it begins, this is what should be done Uh, by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Tanisara Biko says, this is what is to be done by one skilled in aims who wants to break through to the state of peace. I like that very much. Like the state of peace is already there and our mind is somehow separated from it. But if we could see clearly, we'd break through and it's already there. If we clear away... If we clear away the old stories of who we like and who we don't like and who we still don't like and who we still didn't get over not liking. Anybody has anybody like that in their life that they didn't get over not liking? 
And I, 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 I don't know whether we shouldn't put checklists off, up on our refrigerator. People I have not yet gotten over not liking <laughs> or telling myself old stories about. Maybe not on the refrigerator. Other people will see it. But maybe on your own bathroom mirror or something. With the aim to be able to check them off. You're never going to forget what they did, but to be able to get over it. They did that, finished, a long time ago. But the, the one line that I want, and it has lots of things that the person should do, one who is trying to break through to that state of goodness, but the lines that I particularly like from Tanisa Rubico is um, that person should cultivate a limitless heart with regard to all beings. It's really hard, especially these days, with the raucous political season happening, to have a limitless heart towards all beings. Take some sort of superheroic, um, superheroic, which I don't often have, uh, to be able to move to say, you know, I disagree with everything these people are saying, and I'm doing my best to get other people elected, but I don't have to wish them ill, because the wishing ill, in my mind, is really polluting my mind. That uh, Somebody said recently, it, it's not at all eloquent, it's not at all as good as Tennis Rubiku, is that um, harboring, um, harboring um, ill will towards somebody is like drinking poison and hope the other person dies from it. That, uh, it doesn't happen that way, you know, that what happens is that wishing ill really pollutes our own mind. Nothing else happens with it. People, other people don't drop dead from it. With goodwill for the entire cosmos, this is a more elegant way to Nisera. This, With goodwill for the entire cosmos, cultivate a limitless heart above, below, and all around, unobstructed, without enmity or hate. That sounds great to me. Uh, my friend Sharon Salzberg, a long time ago, wrote a book called A Heart as Wide as the World. I was thinking a lot when I started putting together what I wanted to say for today and where I wanted to go with it. I was thinking about the fact that um, when I started to practice, which is now coming on 40 years, 39 now, um, what we talked about was becoming enlightened and that we'd somehow have some realization of the truth of how things were. And I really, I don't want to make it sound like that's not important. I think that's important. But the emphasis on the, was on, I'll get enlightened and then I will understand when terrible things happen that everything is going to pass. Or I'll understand that my anguish is from not being able to accept it. And I'll understand that things are beyond my control. But I think that's really only a half of it. I don't think we get free from understanding. It sounds like feeling free in one's mind is a matter of intellect, that you have to understand something. I think you have to be able to stand it. Actually, we, we talked about this. My husband and I, we used to tease about this 40 years ago. He'd say, he was very philosophical and he read all kinds of 
books about quantum physics and why it was like how the mind works, not knocking that at all. He loved it. And it's very interesting. But he'd say, I really want to understand life. And I would say, not me. I don't want to not understand it, but that is not what interests me. I really want to be able to stand life. Uh, really, what I meant was I wanted to be able to have a heart enough to be able to keep on doing it. I could think of any number of things that would that that seemed to me I couldn't do that. If that happened to me, I couldn't do it. And one of the things that I have gotten to learn, obviously I haven't gotten to learn how to put this earpiece on well. I think it's because I'm fooling with my glasses so much and that's let me see if I can do this on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I have a different ear on the other side. <laughs> that really, I think that, that, that uh, well, I was going to say without being dramatic, this is pretty dramatic. I think that we practice, I practice, in order to become heartbroken and be able to stand it. I think it's heartbreaking if we look around with our eyes open. Everything is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to lose people who are dear to you. Um, not everything is heartbreaking. Well, maybe it is, because uh, there's a way in which, uh, uh, in the most perfect circumstance, uh, in the most perfect circumstance, I remember thinking this a long time ago. Well, now this is going to be out in the world for people to know about. But uh, Adam Barras is 30 years old now, because my grandson is 29, so I remember always that way. And I remember when he was born, his parents, my colleague James Barras and his wife Jane, they were so happy. Really, they married a little bit late, took them a long time to have Adam. They were very happy to have him. And uh, people were gathered around and looking at this beautiful baby with his mother. And everybody remarked about how lovely that scene was. And I was not there, but James is said to have said, from here on, it's downhill all the way. <laughs> now, that could only be spoken by a Dharma teacher who has in mind everything that arises passes away. And I thought, ah, oh, what a thing to say. But when you think about it, the other side, somebody's here with a new three-month-old baby today. That's the most fantastic thing in the world. And we wish people will be happy and find someone to have a baby with and to have a baby and for it to be well. And uh, when I see somebody with a baby, I'm so happy for them. And I'm so hopeful in my heart that everything goes well with them. Because I know now that a million things could not go well. So I really realize, in a way that I didn't when I was young, how absolutely miraculous and precious it is to have a baby. How extraordinary. And when we don't and we want to, we feel really badly that we can't. We want very badly to have something that we will love tremendously and feel attached to. That's really the conundrum of practice. There's a whole thought about you could choose to be a monastic, you could choose to be celibate, you could choose to love all beings, and um, many of my friends are monastics, a perfectly wonderful path of life. And it's not that they don't care about people, but they care about all the people that they teach and they're with. And I am among the people that wanted very much to have particular people to take care of. 
and the minute you have them, you can't imagine not having them. Um, somebody said to me, a, a young mother said, uh, nobody told me when everybody said, congratulations, good luck, mazel tov, wonderful, great. Nobody said, and uh, I wonder if you've noticed that you've mortgaged your heart for the rest of your life. <laughs> because you have at that point. Not that that's the wrong thing. I think that's the birthplace of compassion. That we learn how to care in us, in our immediate circle. Not only our progeny, but our friends and our parents and our siblings. And the people who we know and make dear to us. And we adopt other people into our hearts. What was very touching to me this week, this was in uh, yesterday's New York Times or the day before, Sundays. This is a page of 49 pictures of 49 people, uh, the people who died in Orlando. And each one, the last time I saw something like this was in the New York Times after 9-11. Do you remember that? And there were little vignettes of all of those people. 3,000 people died. People who worked in those buildings, responders, And all of these say variations of Martin Benitez Torres was 33 years old, a professor of his at Mendez, Mendez University in Puerto Rico called him a diligent and extremely hardworking student. The evening before the shooting, he posted a video of himself on Facebook cooking with his family. Jonathan Antonio Camoy Vega, 24, worked on La Voz Kids, a televised singing competition for children. He was a great assistant producer, Cesar Conde, the chairman of Telemundo Enterprises, said in a statement. Jonathan will be missed dearly. Carlos Nieves Rodriguez was 27. He wanted to be the best at what he did, and he would work very hard to achieve that, a friend told the Orlando Sentinel. That's why whatever job he went to, he became a manager. Luis Vielma was 22. Mr. Vielma was studying for emergency medical services certification at Seminole State College in Florida. He worked at Universal Studios at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. On Twitter, J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter series, posted an image of the smiling young man in a Hogwarts costume. One more. Uh, Akira was a very respectful and self-determined young woman. Akira is 18 years, was 18 years old when she died last week. Akira was a respectful and self-determined young woman who served as a natural leader. Beulah Osueki, the head girls basketball coach at West Catholic Preparatory High School in Philadelphia, where Ms. Murphy had just graduated third in her class and led the team in scoring, 
for the past two seasons. There's something about reading these things, like reading the, um, the tributes in the New York Times after 9-11. These are real people, you know, they're the individual people. I remember um, going in um, at, the, at, the, at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, which is a, a, a memorial to the people who died in the Holocaust in um, Europe. There's a separate building for the children who died. And when you go into that building, the architecture of that building is, it's a, a small room, and as I remember, um, it's either octagonal, anyway, it's some polygon-type room, so it's got glass where all the little votive lamps that are burning behind this glass get reflected in each other. So when you walk through, you see many more votives than actually there probably are set up there. And as you walk through, it doesn't take very long to walk through. There's a, uh, uh, an audio that keeps on playing, and all it's doing is reading names. Uh, Joachim Gross, Amiens, France, John Kegler, Rotterdam, Holland. Oh, I forgot, after every name and place, they said the name 15, 12, 18, 8. And so I walked by there 50 years after the event, and I think to myself, this could have been a person. It would have been a person. It was on its way to being a person. Sometimes young people die of diseases or accidents or avalanches or... Um, but these are people who didn't just die. These are people who were murdered purposely, like the people in, um, in the nightclub in Orlando know the people in Connecticut, the 26 very young children and some teachers, or in the movie theater in Colorado. It so renders you speechless. Doesn't, it doesn't matter that you know, everything is ephemeral anywhere, anyway, or that everything is empty, it's just a thought. No spiritual platitude does anything to address brokenheartedness. The only thing that addresses it is kindness and compassion and caring about it. So that when we, when we in contemplating that, think, um, kind thoughts for the people that are all affected by that. Think about those 49 people were connected to 49 families, were connected to 49 different sets of friends. There were a lot of people. And in our own heart, we're moved about that, as are all the people who sent money or tributes or gave blood. 
And the the reason that uh, actually this is my idea also, but I heard it on the radio. Someone was saying, why do people do that when there's some tragedy like that? Why do people suddenly have an, a, a big upswing of generosity and graciousness? And a, a psychologist was talking to this point and said, when people do that, go out and do something gracious, it's because they're really trying to convince themselves that the world is really not bad, that sometimes there are some terrible people who do some terrible things, but most of us don't. Most of us bring flowers. Most of us care about that. Most of us are disturbed by that. And by going out and bringing or doing or saying or celebrating, praying for, we, it's, it's as if we commune with them and each other and say it's not all terrible. There is terrible, and may we live into a time when it's not like this. Of course, we, may we do everything uh, politically that changes. You know, by the way, wait, Susan, I'm, I want to finish this thought because I'll forget it. Um, one of the things that I think a lot about is uh, people keep saying, what's going to be the one that's going to cause the uh, Congress to vote some serious gun laws. I think to myself, it's ridiculous to have the, the laws that they're even contemplating, background checks. Why do we have guns to begin with? Most of the civilized countries, people don't have guns. I don't even know. We are armed to the teeth. I don't know how we're going to, a background check, what, what will that do? Uh, and I hope it's not too late. I can't imagine, but... Um, But I think about broken-hearted enough. So the point I really wanted to make today is really the point that I, uh, that I think I want to make more and more about teaching, that it seems to me that the principal teaching is having to keep my, is learning to keep my own heart warm-hearted enough, compassionate enough, that what is it that I need to do to keep myself from feeling vindictive, and keep myself from feeling angry. It's a very hard time to practice now because there are so many things in the world to feel indignant about. <coughs> but I thought about it in connection particularly, this was the main point I was trying to, aiming for. Because I said earlier, I wonder if it's about uh, training the mind so that it wakes up to the truth of impermanence and the causes of suffering and the fact that everything is connected. I think it's important to know that. I remember, I'm sure I've said it so many times, that the Buddha said, these are the three characteristics of all experience. You should know that things are ephemeral. Everything that happens passes away. And I always think of it... Uh, or pre I often present it in kind of lighthearted terms, like, uh, uh, first of all, it seems to me like the day before yesterday I got married, and uh, 61 years have passed since then. And I, it's not that I have no idea what I did in those 60 years. I do have an idea, uh, not to speak of if I didn't have an idea. I have scrapbooks and pictures and photos and diaries and journals. But it happened much faster. 
but I thought it would. Does it feel to you? How many people here are over 75? Doesn't it feel like it happened very fast? Just like all of a sudden, we got up, 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 and we're 75. <laughs> and my children, if someone would have said to me when I had my, my first child was a boy, and I looked at him as a beautiful little tiny pink-faced little baby boy, if someone would have said, you know, someday he's going to shave and drive a car, you know, you would think about that. Not only shaves, but he's got a beard and it's white. How can I have a child who has a white beard? You know, that just happened overnight, so to speak. It just happens very fast, sort of when you're not looking or something. But, or, or the things that are important, like the Warriors should win, the Warriors should win. Boy, do you think the Warriors are going to win? I was thinking about that so much last week because I would be aware... There was one particular evening last week where uh, I'd been quite upset about the news all week long, as we all had been. And in the middle of that upset, I, I had tickets to uh, uh, an opera uh, uh, on one night. And I went, and it was amazing. It was just such a wonderful production. And I saw people applauding. And the whole opera house standing on everybody on their feet and applauding was so exciting. And I realized we all have amazing minds. We all heard the same news today. We all felt terrible. We all worried about the state of the world and the state of this country. And we came here, we put it down, and we enjoyed. We were uplifted. Our minds are amazing. They can go from zero to 60 or 60 to zero or, and be completely here. And then I walked out, and there was a driver standing just by the door waiting for people to come out. People have arranged with drivers to come and get them. Driver standing right there and listening to a, a listening device. And I looked over, and uh, she said, uh, the war is lost. So I thought, in the middle of this whole thing, the world is crashing into pieces. The government is having a, like a crisis. Uh, we are certainly having a personal national crisis of what is happening in our midst here over this gun out of control. And in the middle of it, we're worrying about whether or not the warriors won. Because when she said, you know, the warriors lost, I felt bad. I said, how did I have room left for the warriors to feel bad? You know, we have amazing minds. And we get up the next day and get dressed and go out again with the same warriors and the same Orlando and the same gun not control. Maybe a little bit more wiser, maybe not. But I think about, very much about what is gonna take, it doesn't do any good, let me put it this way. That, and now, three days later, anybody thinking about the warriors this morning? No. It's finished about the Warriors. They did that. Now we'll start to worry about the Giants and how they're doing. And then we'll think about the 49ers and how they're doing. Because that's also happening in the same newspaper that in the front page is telling you what else is going on and we're doing that. Things, things pass. We all know that. But the truth is that, as somebody said in their sharing, I think Mijo, that things don't pass. There are some things that so... 
engage our soul, our heart, our feeling. They don't pass so fast. The event passes. And the horror of the event maybe gets a little bit more... Um, you can take a breath in the middle of thinking about it. But the event is not less horrible. It's horrible. Forever. And I wasn't even there in Orlando or related to those people. So that when I, when I just read this to you, didn't you feel moved by these people? You hadn't heard about these people before. Geraldo Ortiz Jimenez was 25 years old. He was a resident of Puerto Rico. He'd come to Florida to attend the Selena Gomez concert, said his niece, Tiffany Ortiz, who said Mr. Ortiz Jimenez had talked about the show nonstop from the time he bought tickets. He absolutely loved her, she said. That's so touching to me. I read that and I think, his niece, clearly, who lives in Florida, is Tiffany Ortiz. I love the fact that I meet lots of people now who have um, Latino last names and first names like Tiffany and Jennifer. And I think, oh, you know, you didn't have to do that. Thinking about their parents, I think they probably had some perfectly lovely Latino, Latino name they could have given this baby. But they're Americans and they want to be Americans. And then I hear invective about people who... It just came to my mind. I'll go back and tell you Dharma in a minute. But I heard the other day that on, uh, on some uh, mainstream radio station, which made me happy to hear it, NBC or CBS, someone told me, there was a, uh, a report about uh, two young women in graduating classes in two different places in Texas. And uh, one of them, both of them, it, they, the, both of them valedictorians in the graduating class, and both of them so the, gave the, the graduation address. And uh, one of them, uh, had been accepted in Yale on a full scholarship, and the other one also something fantastic. And uh, one of them at least had a plan that after that uh, they were going to go on to medical school. And both of them, uh, in their talk, mentioned the fact that they were undocumented residents of the United States. I think to myself, I'm happy that it was a, a mainstream channel but it brings tears in my eyes. Uh, one of them had been instrumental in getting, I think maybe the one that got into Yale, maybe I'm conflating stories, one of them as part of her high school career was instrumental in having um, the uh, colleges change their, uh, uh, not use the term, illegal immigrants, illegal immigrants, and begin to use in its place undocumented residents. And uh, illegal immigrants is already better than illegal aliens. That's really uh, ET, you know, that, 
but to say non-documented residents of the United States. And here are these two young women with full scholarships to Yale and someplace else, wonderful, say we are undocumented residents of the United States. Think, ah. So what I'm talking about, the three things I want to really document, and then I want to know what you're thinking about. The, so that Anicca, knowing things pass, is helpful in certain places, you know? All right, they didn't win the Warriors, maybe next year. Um, whatever it was, this job that I wanted, I didn't get it, maybe the next job I'll get. Things, this is just a temporary thing. Both, both, bo both the first um, uh, characteristic of temporality loosens up your attachment to things. I think to myself in times when I, um, I'm really unhappy, sad. You know, I think there's a big difference between sad and depressed. I have a tremendous respect for, um, well, it's funny, it's an odd thing to say, respect for depression, but depression is an illness. And when people say, I struggle with depression, they really do. And I'm very happy that we have medicines that can really address that in a way that we address other physiological uh, illnesses. Uh, I think we often colloquially say, oh, I'm so depressed, when we mean to say I'm really sad. You know, we're just really sad, it's a different, and it's not just a nuanced thing. So we get sad or disappointed. So it's helpful to me when I'm sad or really disappointed, I think, okay, six months from now, this is not gonna be so big. And if I can remember past this, uh, if I'm worried about some event that's coming up, I can think so a month from now, I, I, I could tell myself, don't worry. But I'm pretty good at worrying. I have more or less a lifetime of practice at worrying. <laughs> so if I find myself, I worry less these days, actually, I'm much better. I'm a recovering fretter, but, uh, but it could sneak back. But to tell myself, you know what? My fretting has uh, taken hold. I, you know, I'll work on it. In the meantime, it'll probably be gone in a few days. It will be gone, my fretting, actually, if one of my friends calls and says, you want to meet me for lunch, or you want to do this. They oh, good idea. And then the fretting goes on over here, like what are the warriors going to do? There's just a lot of room in the mind for other things, which is actually one of the points I want to make about beginning to choose, beginning to practice discovering that there's a lot of room in the mind for other than what's there, even when we're sad. I've noticed when I go to church, any one of my friends, either because I go to give a talk there about mindfulness or I'm accompanying one of my friends, that the end of church services, many of them, and the, the ritual of the liturgy ends. And at the end, they're likely to say things like, the seventh grade basketball team is meeting on Tuesday nights in the basement. And uh, the fun drive for the homeless shelter uh, is kicking off this Thursday night. I know it's true in, uh, in synagogues where the last part of the um, of the formal liturgy is uh, uh, a, 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 the whole group stands up and recites uh, 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 praises for life in memory of the people who are no longer in life. So it's a very solemn moment. 
And then right after that, they say about the seventh grade basketball and the, the homeless drive and the political action committee. So it, it really is an example to me about this is true, there are people that we've lost and right now, and there's also a seventh grade that's having a basketball game and there is the concern for the homeless. Uh, discovering that there's a space in the mind, the second truth about the cause of suffering being um, desire, I think that that's not such a good word, desire, that really means, uh, it really means imperative. It really means imperative. There are lots of things that we have a desire for that's a sign that we're healthy. Uh, if you have an illness and you can't eat and you lose your appetite and you get better from the illness and you suddenly have a little bit of an appetite, you feel good about it. You say, wow, I have a desire to eat. I even have a desire to go out for dinner. That's great. So that you don't say, ah, oh, don't have any desire. The, 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 the question is not having desires or not, but being attached to them. You know, I wish I could do this. I, uh, uh, whatever, you think about things that you can't do. Uh, my cousin had just had a knee replacement and she can't drive for a while. So she said, uh, you know, I'd like to get out. I'm a little bit stir crazy, but, uh, but you know, another two weeks I'll go out. You know, so that you don't, you don't fume about can't go out because you can't drive. Uh, it's something lodges in the mind, not even about driving, but I can't be happy unless uh, my sister is happy or I can't, get, I can't be happy unless the election goes my way. I can be very disappointed if it doesn't go my way, but it doesn't have to be that I, I suffer from it. That's, that's what I have to think. I have to think, somebody asked me yesterday, they said, um, in a political discussion, a panel that I was part of, they said, what if it doesn't go the way you want it to go in November? I said, well, you know, I'm, I really will be tremendously disappointed, but I really need to keep in my mind that whatever day the election is, I think it's November 6th, uh, it's not the last day of the world that after that there'll be a next, and there'll be a next, and there'll be a next. And it's not gonna be a perfect world the day after if the candidate that I want to win wins. And it's not gonna be the end of the world if the candidate that I don't want to win. Although in my mind, I, I, you know, the response in my mind is that's the end of the world. I actually doubt that. I think that there would be something else that rises up. But, the pain in the mind that cannot accommodate what's true. I don't think that knowing that the pain in the mind would go away if I stopped struggling with it. I think it's feeling compassionate for myself when I can't stop struggling with it. I've told so many times the story of my friend Martha who died of pancreas cancer and she said, you know, I go around a lot of time thinking, why me, why me, why me? I'm so young, I don't have it in my family, nobody had it. I eat right, I've been on a really this kind of a diet forever, I work out, why me? She said, when I think that, I suffer a lot. And when I think to myself, why not me? It's one of the things that people get, who knows why? I probably have the gene for it. 
She said, when I, when I think, why not me? I'm not any happier about dying, but I don't suffer so much because I think that people get it. I'm not the only person who get it. The Buddha story is Kisagatami, who was the woman who came to the Buddha with her dead child in her arms and uh, said, I heard that you're a miracle worker and you bring people back to life. Can you bring my child back to life? And the Buddha said, certainly, I'll do a ritual, but it requires that I have a mustard seed from a house that no one has ever died in. So Kisagatami goes running off with the child to find such a house. And of course, there is no house where no one has ever died because everybody dies. And in the time of the Buddha, there weren't hospitals. So, you, you know, you could say in this house, no one died. It's a, it's a way of saying everybody dies eventually. Nobody doesn't know it if they keep their eyes open. And she comes back and uh, bows to the Buddha because she has realized that. And for years, I had a kind of a halfway good feeling and a halfway bad feeling about that story because I felt like... Um, I felt as if it would end better if she came back and said to the Buddha, I get it. We have to deal with the fact that in life everybody loses what's dear to them, unless what's dear to them loses them first. And uh, that's how, always how I heard the end of it. And she becomes his disciple, the Buddha's disciple. But I, I said if I, if I could rewrite the story, she would come back and say, I get it, and I want to be your disciple. And then they would at least spend a little time crying together. That was my better end to the story. But then I recently read yet another commentary on that mustard seed story in which it said that the Buddha sent her out and said, uh, go look in all the houses in order for her to see that everyone had this, that it was actually an act of compassion on the part of the Buddha that he could have said, look, everybody dies eventually. We have to deal with it. You want to be my good disciple. But if he sent her out, that she would see that that, that um, experience of terrible loss is everyone's experience, and that he did it as an act of compassion. The third characteristic is, the character, is seeing in everything that happens that there, this is caused by that. When the Buddha said, because of this, because of that, this, is one of the famous things that the Buddha said. So you say, well, what does that mean, because of that, this? It means that what's happening now is the collective karma of the whole world. This particular time in history did not start yesterday. This is for better or for worse, and for better and worse, although you really wouldn't know it. You really wouldn't know it. We have such an emphasis on the worst these days. The very opera that I saw the other day, which was f fantastically performed, uh, it's an opera called Genufa. It's written, it's in Czech, but I mean, there are subtitles. And Genufa is a woman in uh, a village in Czechoslovakia a hundred years ago who becomes pregnant and she's not married. And the shame that that involves and the uh, horror and humiliation on the part of her mother, which is so intense that, uh, in fact, the mother 
kills the infant child in order to spare herself and her daughter, she thinks, the ignominy of having to tell the community that she is pregnant with a, and not married. And I thought to myself, first of all, I, I, it, I say to myself, you know, you're just supposed to be here listening to the music. Don't get involved with a sudden attack of feminist outrage. But you can't not have an attack of feminist outrage. You can't have an attack, not have an attack of feminist outrage with most operas that, that was certainly that were written in the 19th and early 20th century. But this is so horrible. And the fact that, you know, now women get pregnant routinely not married and purposely sometimes not married and purposely and not purposely sometimes but it's not horrifying so there the world as the world changes some parts of the world have woken up a little bit really this country is a different country from the country when stonewall happened really it's a different world this many years later and any community is more for most of us the story about, you know, where have you got limits? Do you have limits on ethnicity or religious tradition? I don't think we do. I, I you know, I, probably because the people in this room are probably a higher level of education in their background. People who are educated actually understand that we look different and have different things about us because we just are, are different in some particular ways, but not in the ways we all have hearts and stomachs and pancreases and brains, and we all feel bad when we lose something that's dear to us. So what I was saying is everything that happens is a cause of everything, and some of the fruits of the cause of everything are the fact that we're not finished with racism in this country, but it's better than it was. I, you know, I, this may be totally my wanting to see it in better than it is terms. It's certainly not finished with it. But I'm noticing how much on TV there are subtle clues that we're getting over it. People sitting at tables with uh, people of uh, different, obviously different ethnic, racially ethnic characteristics are getting married or going on camping trips or sitting in restaurants and people are getting used to the fact that that's what, that's what happens. More of people. I love it when it's on TV, in the ads even. You think to yourself, how is a Cialis ad gonna change the world? It might, you know, if you see that the, that the partners who are having a discussion about how much they like each other and what they might do about this uh, are different colors. That's great, you know, that uh, more people are looking at that than are going to diversity classes, for sure. They're watching it on the TV. So for, for better and for worse, because it's getting flamed up by people who, for reasons of their parentage and their parentage and their parentage, are needing to flare things up for greed and hatred and delusion that are out of control. What I wanted to end with, and I better hurry if I want to end with it, is that um, 
all along, since the beginning of my beginning to study Dharma, I've really been interested in all those, the, the, uh, that everything is, has suffering in it, that the nature of suffering is that suffering arises when there is imperative of the mind that things be different, and that everything is the cause of everything and the result of everything. It has helped me a lot. Each of those has helped me a lot just to think about my, my uh, cousin who has uh, the exactly opposite political ideas that I have. I love her. She's a wonderful person. I don't have any trouble when I'm with her thinking she had different parents and different parents and different parents. She sees the world differently than I do in a political context, but she's a lovely woman. So the fact that she had votes differently doesn't frighten me. Sometimes it frightens me, sometimes it doesn't. I don't, and I don't make her bad in my mind or my enemy in my mind. So I think about how am I gonna keep enough love in my mind to do that past the cousin? But really I think the answer to how am I gonna have enough love in my mind is how am I gonna have enough compassion in my mind? And that I think goes back to what I really said in the beginning. I'm not sure that it's about breaking through with wisdom into clarity and freedom. I think it's breaking through with heart and with love and compassion to being able to really touch that, uh, that place of uh, genuinely being able to cherish all beings in all directions, above, uh, and all around, unobstructed, without enmity, cultivate a limitless heart. So very quickly, so I can do this in three minutes. Over the years, I've been intrigued by uh, different teachers, different meditation teachers. I'm always interested in, in the meditation teachers in the mindfulness tradition, in the Vipassana tradition, who say you have to pay attention to just the breath, just the breath at the nostrils, just the breath in the belly, just the breath in the rib cage, just the passing of the stars and the waxing and waning of the moon. There's a book called Living Dharma, which Jack Cornfield wrote 20 years ago at least, uh, interviewing different uh, traditional Thai forest and Burmese forest lineage teachers. And everybody had a different technique for breaking through to wisdom. And uh, they all had a different technique from each other. And they were all sure that their way was the right way. And that was very freeing to me when I read it to begin with, because I thought, well, hey, then I can figure out what's my way also, or I could do all the ways, but clearly there isn't one way. But the emphasis in most of those teachings was, as far as I remember at least, I'll break through and I'll understand that everything is ephemeral, nothing is real because it doesn't last. I actually think things are real. They don't last, but it doesn't make them any less real. The people we love are no less real because they're impermanent. So I'm not so comfortable by saying everything is empty. You know, on some non-dual level it is, but we don't live on a non-dual level. We live in a world where we can feel each other. My friend Marilyn is flying to be with her sister because the Skype is not the same as if you sit in the same room and you touch that person's body. It's not. 
So I'm very interested in all of those teachings that lead to those wisdoms. But I think that the part that really interests me is the part that really starts not from what do I know is true, but what do I feel is important. I remember Krishnamurti, uh, who was a very um, important spiritual teaching, teacher in mid-century, uh, 20th century, who used to say to people, don't meditate. It's not important to meditate. Don't close your eyes, just look around. You look around, you see the suffering in the world. And your heart that's redemptive, your heart that will really warm you and connect you to your life, that will be available. The, uh, the Muslim uh, taxi driver, who I've told you that story so many times, who I was having a conversation with, I was sitting up in the front of this airport van, I was having a discussion with him about his prayer life because it was very early in the morning and he had said, can I pull off, would you mind if I pulled off and got some coffee? It was a long three hour ride from Santa Barbara to LAX. I said, no, no, pull off. Uh, but I was trying to keep him awake, you know, talking about what, do you, what is your prayer practice in Islam. So he talked to me about five times a day and what he said. And I said, do you have to pray long or short? And he said, doesn't matter, you could pray long or short. Some people pray long, some people pray short. A person could stand all day, he said, and pray all day, and it could be meaningless. We couldn't count. Uh, so I said, well, how would it be counted? He said, well, it only counts if you're really praying for if it's connected to your heart. And I said, well, how do, you, how, how do you connect with your heart? You see, you just look around at the world. You see people are suffering all over the place. He said, you look around, it's like everybody's been thrown into the ocean and they don't know how to swim. And when you realize that, you connect with your heart. I was thinking about one time I went to see a man who's not living anymore. He was a Tibetan teacher. His name was Chagdud Rinpoche. And I made an appointment to see him. He was normally in Seattle, but he was in the Bay Area, and I made an appointment to go see him because it was a time that in my meditation practice I had lots of energy in my body, which many people have when they spend a lot of time sitting still, meditating. And I'd been doing a lot of retreat practice at that time and it I took over my body and I couldn't stop it off and I was really uncomfortable. So people said, go talk to Chagdud Rinpoche, the Tibetans know how to deal with energy. My teachers did not know how to deal with energy. They said, pay attention to it very closely, which made it worse and steamed it up. So they would tell you that now. Actually, people come to see me referred by other people because I know about those energy states now. But I went to see Chagdad Rinpoche, and truth to tell, I remember driving over and I was a little bit tense about meeting a Rinpoche, and, uh, but I was also a little bit proud of myself that I had all this interesting stuff. Wasn't comfortable to have all this racing energy in my body and not being, not being able to sleep and my teeth chattering in the night. And it wasn't that comfortable, but it was special, you know, not everybody had that. I thought, maybe this is on the road to some big enlightenment. I think it was on the road to more and more wigged out neurologically. But anyway, I went to, I went to see Chagdun and I, you know, care, and his English was, was hard to understand, but 
I spoke, I told him my story very carefully and slowly, and he had an assistant who could help him and translate. So I told my story about where it was and the energy and what it was doing and finished that. I got all finished, he said, um, how much compassion practice do you do every day? And uh, I uh, really didn't know what to make out of the question. So I said, um, I said the textbook answer. I said, you know, what I've learned is that uh, with mindfulness practice and enough insight about those three characteristics, I didn't say that whole thing, I'm just saying to you, with enough insight that wisdom and equanimity would arise and then compassion would manifest. It's a very good translate, uh, presentation of what it says in textbooks, that insight leads to wisdom, expresses itself with compassion. But I was just giving the textbook answer, and he knew that. He said to me, no, really, he said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I had to say to him, you know, I don't know what you mean, what do you mean? And he said, how much do you go out in the street every day and look around and see how people are suffering? So it was the same from Muktananda, uh, um, Mukt, uh, not Muktananda, uh, Murti said that, and Mohammed, my cab driver, said that, and Chagdud said that. A Rebbe I met in Jerusalem who was very interested in the fact that I was a Buddhist teacher I thought he'd be maybe a little bit put off by that. He said, I'm so interested in that. Tell me a little bit about it. I told him about mindfulness and how we do it. And he said, I'm very interested in that. He said, did you ever have any trouble with that practice? And I said, yeah, you know, I still am having a little bit from hyper energy in my practice. I was, I, I'm glad to tell you that story because it's fun because... How do you explain to someone who doesn't speak very good English? It's kind of a broken translation, but anyway, I tell him this story about, he said, oh, he said, well, I, uh, I'm not a meditation teacher, which I actually think he turns out to have been. So I'm not a meditation teacher, but this is what I think. I think you did too much meditation. I think you should be going out in the street every day <laughs> and looking around and seeing how much people are suffering. So those are four examples. They're valuable if I put them all together, aren't they? Of everybody you know, who has somehow broken through to that place of compassion for humanity. So just go out and look around, you know? Uh, and I thought maybe he meant, uh, for a while when I thought about it, I said, well, if you, I'm thinking, if you look in any place, like an airport boarding lounge, or you look uh, any place where there's a lot of people, if you go to um, if you go to the symphony on Thursday afternoons, where uh, the only people who go to the symphony on Thursday afternoon is elderly people, because those are only people are not working on a Thursday afternoon, so there's a lot of people there on walkers and canes. And a lot of people in wheelchairs. And you could, so I thought really it, it had to do with people suffering from external things, reading about um, in the paper about uh, some awful situation somewhere in the world. That look around and see the suffering. But really, I think it's look around and see the suffering. When we share in our prayers for, the, for what's on our minds, 
Everybody here is suffering for something in their life that isn't quite resolved. We have pain in our mind about this or that or the other. In addition to pain in our body about this or that, in addition to the pain in the community and the pain in the country, the pain of the world, this has been, I heard, uh, I, I guess I read in the newspaper this morning, Vice President Biden saying the last decade is the hottest in the history of the world. And still, climate change is a hoax, is what we are hearing on the television. It's so painful. So compassion for everything, all beings, they live in the same world. I'm actually more worried when I think about the climate change, I'm worried for everybody. But I'm worried for the vast numbers of people who live in places that don't have enough water or enough, enough electricity or enough, enough modernization to go in from the heat. I wish I'd ended on something more up. <laughs> yeah, up. I want to invite people to a, a show at Toby's in Point Reyes, the feed store, and it's about climate and climate change, and it's about the inside climate of people and the Latino Photography Project, which is a lot of people that you've talked about have taken lessons in photography, and they're going to be they're showing there until the 30th, and the Artists in the Schools Project, which talks about that as well, is going to be there till the 30th, and, and there are the um, Frida Kahlo eighth grade portraits in the, the style that the students have done, and it would be very... So this is in Point Reyes. Yes, stop by gallery, one for the memory building tomorrow at 3 All right. So listen, people need to leave. Thank you very much. Susan, did you have something that you can say in 30 seconds? I see people are leaving, so bring it yeah. the next time. Bring it the next time. We'll still have sadness and grief. Let me remind you about Sunday, if you want to go on the Pride Parade, you have to just phone up Catherine Sullivan, who's our communications person, and it's extension 255. And I hope you'll start to think about the Labor Day weekend. Did I say today about the Labor Day weekend? The thing I didn't say about the Labor Day weekend is that Spirit Rock is organizing a bus transportation from the North Berkeley Station every day from the North Berkeley Station to Spirit Rock in the morning and back at the end of the afternoon. For, first of all, for the spare of the air, we don't need 50 different cars coming all that way. And second of all, to make it easier for people without cars to make their way to the North Berkeley Station. Even people in San Francisco can bring themselves to the North Berkeley Station. How many people might use such a bus if it was there? Because I'll report on it and I'll, I'll talk it up. Also, when you think about those three days and you think, oh, phooey, I can't come on Sunday because I have my niece's wedding on that day, you can't sign up for two out of the three days. You have to sign up for the whole thing. But Nobody's going to take attendance. I mean, you're not barred from the rest of it if you don't come to the 
some other day, and you can come to two out of three. Everything counts. May all beings be peaceful and happy. And I don't know when I'm here again. I think in two weeks or three weeks or any four weeks. Hmm. Last week in July. Oh well, all right. Whenever we see each other, that's when we'll see each other. May all beings be peaceful and happy and not suffer. This is marvelous in here. I just love it. The microphone sounds great. The room sounds great. It's airy. It's not falling in. <laughs> <laughs>